and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with conservationists, ecologists and the occasional wildlife filmmaker or climate activist to talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects and the climate justice movement. So at the beginning of episode one, I talked all about the coffee connection, and at the end of this episode, we'll be highlighting another independent coffee company. So listen right through to the end to find out who they are and how you can be supporting them. This week, I sat down with Pete Kent. Pete is a wildlife and conservation photographer, conservation tourism operator, and environmental communicator. He's also the co-founder and executive director of Scotland, The Big Picture, a not-for-profit organisation and charity that creates multimedia projects to support rewilding efforts in Scotland. So, hi Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to come on today. We'll start it off by getting to know you a bit. Um, Could you tell us a bit about yourself and kind of how you first got interested in wildlife and in topics such as environmental communication? Okay, well, I guess the journey starts way back when, as a child, I was always interested in nature. Um, Like most teenagers, lost that interest um, for, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so, came back to it late 20s. Was was always fascinated, really, by photography, and and I I, I suppose I started off as a bit of a trophy hunter, going around, capturing images of, of, you know, attractive wildlife, and and I suppose really trying to bring back a record of what I'd seen out on a walk or, or whatever, I um, started to travel more further afield, and, and I suppose over the years, my approach to photography gradually morphed and evolved, um, and I eventually realized that actually imagery, visual imagery in, in particular, is a very powerful communication tool. So I kind of morphed from being a, a sort of a bog-standard nature photographer, if you like, into a environmental communicator. That sounds awfully pretentious I, I know but that, that's kind of the, the direction of travel and then over the last sort of five seven eight years that that approach has crystallized uh, I now work as part of a small team we produce all manner of visual media from photography video graphics animations we have a team of writers etc etc so our job really fundamentally at Scotland the big picture is to translate what well, is to commentate on the rewilding process as it's evolving across Scotland but in doing so to translate ecological science into a language that is relatable it resonates with a mainstream audience so it's really about mainstreaming rewilding that that's our ultimate goal so the non-profit organization that you currently work with um or you're the executive director and co-founder of your focus is with rewilding. Just tell us a bit about sort of exactly what the organisation does and, and sort of for those who for those listening who don't know, um, could you break down the term rewilding for us? Like, what is okay. it? Okay, okay, I'll, I'll do my best to be quick about this because it's quite a, a complex story. I mean, historically, conservation, um, I mean, since I've been involved 30, 35 years or so, it's always been about... Um, focusing on individual species and, and, and individual habitats. It's very, a very piecemeal approach to conserving fragments and threads of nature, if you like, a rare bird here, a fragment of, of, of rare habitat there. So we, And then what we do, of course, we, we, we could kind of build a fence around those islands of nature. It's not always a physical fence, but it's a metaphorical fence. So, so you have effectively commoditized nature. There are, there are specific places where you go 
where nature exists and then other places that are where nature doesn't exist and and, and we, we drive and, and travel between the two and rewilding really is a much more ambitious holistic approach to conserving nature or not not necessarily just conserving it but actually restoring it so it's an ecosystem scale uh, restoration process really and in Scotland there's a lot of really exciting work going on uh, projects like Cairngorms Connect and East West Wild these are landscape scale restoration projects so we're talking about the restoration of, of woodland the the re-wetting um, and, and revitalization of peatlands in some cases the reintroduction of lost species to really allow the ecosystem as a whole to function more effectively. Our role within that originally was was one of just commentating on what was a very rapidly evolving and exciting story, and I'm going back sort of five, six years now. Over that period, we've gradually been sucked into much more of a lobbying and, dare I say, campaigning role. And Scotland, the big picture, was always a non, non-profit. We operated it as a social enterprise, uh, but actually we've now become a charity. Uh, as much as anything, because we've ramped up our ambition, and to fuel that ambition, we need funding. With the best will in the world, everybody needs funding. So, um, yeah, the, the the charity route was a strategic decision to to allow us to access funding that wasn't previously available to us. Okay, so um, with rewilding, it is a it can be quite a contentious subject. I've been reading the book Wilding by Isabella Tree about the uh-huh. net net project. Um, in the book, um, she describes a huge amount of kind of bureaucratic hurdles and local opposition to the project. Have yeah. you experienced any sort of major problems with the projects you work with? Oh yes, <laughs> on a daily basis. Um, I mean, this is this is a this is a social process in many ways. If you go back ten, fifteen years. We didn't know how to restore forests. We didn't know how to re-wet peatlands. We didn't know how to re-naturalize rivers. This, this stuff, the physical stuff, actually, we do know now. We know how to do all this stuff. We're now into the sort of the human dimension, the social dimension, and, and overcoming all of those obstacles, prejudicial obstacles in many cases. So, you know, it's a process about winning hearts and minds. And, and that is a process like many social processes that takes a long, long time. Um, so yes, you're, with rewilding, you're, you're 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 introducing two concepts that the human condition, certainly our cultural condition, isn't isn't used to. And that's one is change. It's bringing about change, and people generally speaking are a little bit uncomfortable with change. And and rewilding is also asking us as a society, and specifically land managers, to relinquish control. And and that's something we've become accustomed to. We've become accustomed to having control over the landscape and managing it to our own end and rewilding kind of flies in the face of that it's basically handing control back to nature Uh, and and so that sits uncomfortably with a lot of people so those two words change and control are really the two linchpins if you like around which most of our work um, revolves so yeah it's it's a process it's a challenging process the potential is hugely exciting but there's certainly many, many obstacles, and most of them are people obstacles rather than wildlife obstacles um, to overcome. So, it, yeah, it's a challenge as well as a, as, a, as a privilege to work in this arena. Yeah, I can definitely understand how a lot of people would be opposed to to something like this. It, it seems kind of counterintuitive, taking your hands off the steering wheel and kind of letting nature take hold, especially to, to modern 
uh, sort of a modern generation. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you think about it, we, we, we've become accepting of a very degraded, ecologically speaking, a very degraded landscape. You know, if you take somewhere like the Lake District, for example, and I'm just using that as one of many examples, but, you know, people have come to love the cultural landscape that exists there, that they've accepted that not only as normal, but also as something to be celebrated, something to be cherished, and actually something to be invested in from a financial point of view. But ecologically, you know, that landscape, and and many, many across the whole of the UK, are massively degraded, impoverished. You know, we are one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world. All of our large carnivores have gone. Most of our large herbivores have gone. And we, we spend most of our time just desperately holding on to just fragments and threads of nature and celebrating very small and some might argue very insignificant successes. Um, so, you know, rewilding is a, is a massive ramping up of ecological ambition. It's about restoring and revitalizing whole landscapes, not only so that they are more nature rich, and that in itself is a, is a worthy pursuit, but actually... Um, you know, this is in our interest. So if you take things like climate change, um, water purity, air pollution, um, human well-being, flood, flooding, these are all things that, that rewilding or a rewilded landscape can help to address. So it's not just a, some sort of fanciful notion of, of returning to a wilderness long lost. And it isn't that. It's a very future-oriented philosophy. It's about protecting our own interests too. So, you know, from where I sit, rewilding, and I understand the challenges, the perceptions of change and and loss of control, but from where I sit, rewilding is a win-win for both nature and people and climate. Yeah, and that's definitely something that I think people should be more supportive of. So, looking over your website at the weekend, and you seem to have a lot of exciting projects in the works... The thing that really caught my eye was the project about lynx. Now, you mentioned uh, our lack of large carnivores, um, mostly because they've just all been killed, really. They've all been driven to extinction. I know introducing a big predator into a country that has become used to life without them, and also the UK, obviously, it relies heavily on livestock farming. Uh, it's quite a problematic subject. Could you talk us through that project in particular, sort of the main issues you've encountered with it? Yeah, so so you're right. Re- rewilding um, has become, in, in some quarters, synonymous with the return of large carnivores. And, and that's why, um, again, in some quarters there is, there is opposition, because it... It's not necessarily about the, the animal itself. It's about having that animal imposed upon an unwilling rural community. So it's more about what the animal represents rather than what it is. But nevertheless, you know, big big predators come with, with practical and philosophical challenges. There's no doubt about that. I think it's important not to, not to use this word large predator too casually because there's a massive difference between wolves and what they are and what they bring. And, and lynx, for example. So lynx is a much more um, palatable, if you like, politically palatable animal and, and, and has much less of, a, of an impact on traditional land uses like the rearing of livestock, as you, as you alluded to, which is not to say that there won't be, won't be issues, won't be challenges, there will, but nowhere near what we would encounter with, with wolves. The, the project that we're involved with, Lynx to Scotland, um, 
actually isn't a recommendation to reintroduce links. I mean, we would make no, we wouldn't hide behind the fact we would like to see that happen. But in order for that to happen, the people of Scotland have to be in favour of it in general terms. So the project that we're involved with actually is a two-year research project to definitively identify whether there's an appetite in Scotland for the return of links. It's not about returning links at this stage. It's about establishing that those social attitudes and perceptions, and that would form part of an application to reintroduce links if it came to that, but equally it may not come to it, and we may discover Scotland isn't ready for links, in which case we have to put it away for at least for the time being. So this is a specific time-limited project to establish that appetite, or not, as the case may be. Okay, yeah, and I think it's um, as much as a lot of rewilding uh, advocates would want to just launch into projects it is um there's a lot of challenges as you've described and i think sort of gauging public opinion um as you've said is really really important in that because yeah without without funding and without positive sort of feedback around it they a lot of them could potentially be set up and then fail very quickly yeah and and that's been proven to be the case elsewhere in the world so you know, most most projects that you look at over the last sort of 20, 30 years, um, the ones that have failed have been almost always as a direct result of poor public engagement. And those that have succeeded have done that well or done it better. So, you know, this is not, we, we, know, how, we know where to get the links from. We know how to, to handle them. We know where to release them. We know where their biological needs would be met. Um, this is all about people and their acceptance of, of, as you say, living alongside an animal that they've grown used to not living alongside, and whether they perceive that as a, as a benefit, as an opportunity, or whether they perceive it as an, as an intolerable threat. Because there's a lot of noise on in, in the media about links, good, bad, and indifferent, but it is just noise. And this research project um, is bringing some science to that to, to that sort of uh, that conversation. Um, so I do want to touch just briefly on this, but first and foremost, you're a videographer, a photographer and communicator, and I'm sure you've spent a lot of time sort of traveling and working around the world, looking at the global sort of climate and ecological crisis that we're currently going through. You alluded to this at the beginning, um, but to what extent do you think multimedia uh, so let's give an example, like a BBC natural history show or a photography exhibition. Um, how important are those things in general global conservation? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I mean, if you'd asked me this 15 years ago, um, I'd have said very important. And I, and I still think, you know, the media, visual media in particular, has a huge role to play in influencing people's perceptions and attitudes. Um I think things have changed in the last 10, 15 years radically. There's so much noise out there now, so much media that we're fed from so many different platforms. It's really, really difficult to have your voice heard or your images seen or your story told. Um, and I think, you know, the pressure on, on communicators is, is, is mounting almost daily to come up with new angles, to come up with new stories and new new keys to unlock new doors and it is really really difficult so i don't think um i don't think it's any longer enough for a you know in inverted commas conservation photographer just to produce pretty pictures 
and hope that they're going to instigate change. I think there was a case for that 15 years ago, but we've moved on. And we've got to be, as, as a community, we've got to be much more creative, much more canny about how we get inside people's heads and hearts and use the currency that is visual media, whether that's still you know, multimedia, it doesn't matter what the, what the currency is, but use the, the tools that, that multimedia uh, afford us much more creatively. So, yeah, it, it's a challenge. It's still important, and I think visual stories, or stories, you know, as, 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 a, as a species, we're hardwired to, to absorb stories, written stories, verbal stories, visual stories. So the storytelling is, is really, really important. But I think we've got to be really clever about how we do that. And, and that's something that has gotten the big picture. We're constantly analysing. And we're nowhere near where we need to be, but we think we're on the right road. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, it's still important, if not more important, but we've got to be really insightful about how we deliver those stories and that and that media in a very, very noisy world. And, we, you know, you've got to kind of cut through that white noise if you can. Yeah, and no, I think that's very important um, for our listeners to know, but also um, for the people like myself actually kind of breaking into this industry very slowly, knowing what uh, me and my peers at this age kind of have to look at and have to um, work with in the future to, to sort of make the difference that we want to. Now, breaking away from that a bit, unfortunately, I do have to ask this, but at the time of recording, we're still in lockdown in the UK, uh, more so in Scotland now than down here in the south where it's relaxing a bit. Uh How much has the pandemic impacted sort of business and projects? Um, I suppose two things, really. First, going back to the storytelling, we're doing more and more people-led storytelling. So again, you know, we've moved away from the the beautiful sort of sweeping landscape vistas and the charismatic wildlife. We still do quite a bit of that because it, it's valuable, but most of the stories we're telling are, are people-led these days. So, of course, we've not been able to get together with people to interview them, to film them, to talk with them, etc. So that's been an impact. Um, as I say, we, we've very recently become a charity, so it's probably the worst time we could possibly have imagined to do that because funding mechanisms are just all over the place. Um, and, and so the future from a, from a fundraising point of view is very, very uncertain. And of course, you know, as I say, with the best will in the world, um, everybody needs the, 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 the financial resources to make these projects happen. So, yeah, I think it's access to people has been restricted, obviously, um, and also the financial uncertainty that has come upon us as a result of COVID. Um, who knows how that's going to play out in the next few years? And that's, that's, that's the problem. Nobody knows. There's no reference point in the past to use. We are, we are in, a, in a world of complete uncertainty. Um, but, you know, you've got two choices. You either sit and lament that, and, you know, we all do a fair amount of that, or you adapt and you do your best. And so we're, we're, we're presently looking at different ways that we can um, not use the, the restrictions, but, but adapt to the restrictions placed upon us. Um, to carry on our work as best we can and, and you know that applies across all all organizations like ours yeah that makes um makes a lot of sense i've worked as a fundraiser in the past and i know how important um face-to-face roles can be um well pretty pretty vital to sort of how you how you do most of your work now as a charity
before we finish, we're just going to do a little quick fire round. So, first off, what's your favourite animal? Bear. Where's a place that you like to go and sort of connect with nature, somewhere you really feel at home in the wilderness? Yeah, I mean, I'm very lucky to live in the Cairngorms um, and on the edge of the Cairngorms Connect project. So, really, anywhere in around Glenfeshi, the southwest corner of the Cairngorms National Park, there's a little series of lochans just 10 minutes walk from my home and that's really where I go to to get away. Do you have a conservation hero? I have quite a few actually. Um, I suppose in terms of philosophy, somebody like John Muir or Aldo Leopold would be up there. More locally, uh, Roy Dennis, the raptor expert, has always been an inspiration to me. He's a guy that just gets on with it. He doesn't take any nonsense, just gets stuff done. Um, And then I have a lot of people that I look up to fairly locally actually that have you know, go below the, the radar, but just get on with doing really good stuff. So, yeah, a, a, a fair few influencers and inspirers over, and people that have inspired me over the years. And finally, how do you take your coffee? Builder's coffee, white, milky and two sugars. So I think we'll wrap it up there. But before we finish, I just want to ask where can people find you? Um, sort of what are your own social media and online handles and those of Scotland The Big Picture? Yeah, so Scotland The Big Picture is scotlandbigpicture.com, no punctuation. Uh, and you'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and what's the other one? Instagram, it's not my bag. Um, but yeah, we're on all the social media channels. My own website is petercairnsphotography.com um, and again, I suppose I'm most active on, on Twitter so you, you can find me there. Photo, I think it is. So, uh, yeah. Thanks again to Pete for giving up his time to talk to us today. Links to all his platforms and those of his organisation will be in the description down below and over on our Instagram page at Coffee with Conservationists. So I mentioned at the beginning of episode one about the whole coffee connection. And while talking to Pete, I had a really nice cup of coffee from Tamp Culture, which is an independent coffee company based in my hometown of Reading. As a long-term drinker of their coffee, I'm a big fan of their commitment to sustainable and ethical coffee as they deal directly with the farmers. All the info on this particular coffee, which came from Colombia, will also be in the description down below and over on our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman-Jones, and this is the Coffee with Conservationists podcast.